In 2002, director Doug Lyman and star Matt Damon gave the world an unforgettably gritty take on the super spy genre. In 2022, we try one of the most inexpensive single malts on the market. The film is The Born Identity. The whiskey is the Glenlivet Founders Reserve. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2002 film, The Born Identity. Brad, I gotta say, just up front, man, I am like, I'm really happy you picked this movie because it has been a really long time since I watched this movie. The Born, you know, originally the trilogy... Uh, was was already kind of spread out. Like you had a few years in between each movie and then they did the reboot with uh, Jeremy Renner, which didn't work very well. And then they brought Matt Damon back for another one just to like round it out. I don't think I've seen the fifth one at all. And so like the Bourne movies have not been on my mind for a long, long time. There was a lot about this movie I didn't even remember. Yeah, this series feels like they were trying to make their own like Bond spinoff series. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the Daniel Craig ones started coming out, and they were pretty much the same movie as this. And then the Mission Impossible series got really realistic and just freaking amazing. And I genuinely feel like when they switched over to Jeremy Renner, the entire idea of of a universe of born super spies just kind of lost. Yeah. It, it lost its appeal. Well, it and they weren't like well it, made. It's Yeah, that so, too. It seemed like whatever leg up this series had, they had lost it by that point. And like, you know, we've talked a ton about the effect that The Dark Knight had on cinema. But I remember reading reviews of The Dark Knight that talked about like the Jason Bourneification of Batman. In the early 2000s, the Bourne movies really were kind of code for this new, realistic hand-to-hand combat you know, darker, grittier spy movie that we really hadn't seen up to that point. I mean, you got to remember the last time we saw James Bond before the Daniel Craig era is Die Another Day, which comes out (laughs) the same year as this movie and is like the most ridiculous campy thing. They really pushed the Pierce Brosnan era into like straight camp. And so when you see the Daniel Craig like reset in what, 06 with uh, Casino Royale, they really were taking a page out of the Jason Bourne playbook. Yeah, honestly, if if you are a younger listener to the podcast, Jason Bourne was the early 2000s version of John Wick. Hmm. Like, uh, I remember hearing people talk about John Wick and being like, oh, it's this revolutionary idea where you like do realistic action and, and guns run out of bullets and punches look like they hurt. And it's it's so realistic and I think that the reason people were freaking out about that, rightfully so, the, you know, John Wick is a really good movie, was because they everybody had become inundated with superhero movies mm-hmm. and, you know, and these completely unrealistic action sequences, which are fine in their own right. But I, I will say that it really was Jason Bourne that paved the way for these more hyper-realistic action movies. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and the funny thing about this one in particular, and you know, before we get too far down the rabbit hole, we will come back to <laughs> Brad explains and stuff. But that's daggone right, we will. Watching this one again, I feel like this movie really was kind of standing with like one foot in the late '90s and one foot in what it was going to introduce to the world. You know what? Like illustrated that perfectly. What's that? Was <laughs> in the in the computer rooms. You had like half, like most of the computers were these massive, huge monitors. But every once in a while, you had like a flat screen monitor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if there's a more perfect image of this movie feeling incredibly old and yet so technologically advanced when it came out. Yeah. And there's something that like I, you know, I know a lot of film terminology, but I've never been able to really put my finger on it. But like. There's something about movies from the the late 90s. So think of like, you know, starting in 95, like Braveheart, Apollo 13, like through to the end of the decade. There's something about the look of those movies that, you know, they're they're shooting on film, but it has this very kind of like flat, like even Braveheart. It's not like a really dynamic looking movie. And this movie kind of has that like flat filmic look to it. That I think like in, in the later movies in the series, which Paul Greengrass would come in and direct, you know, he went with the shaky cam stuff, but they look so much more of the moment than this first one does. This first one feels like it was filmed in like 1993 <laughs> and released in 2002. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you, dude. The I think for me, it's the color of a lot of those movies that like you said, the there's nothing bright on screen, like e- even in a movie like Braveheart. Where, you know, you're in the highlands of Scotland and it's this beautiful green grass. Even that, like, has a has a flat affect to it. Mm-hmm. And it's not the end of the world. It, it just feels like it was a, almost like its own little subgenre of coloration. It, like you said, in the mid to late 90s. Which is funny because now I feel like every major blockbuster that, you know, like the MCU is known so, for being like beige and gray all the time. But yeah. it just looks so fake and digital, whereas this one looks like just a really flat film photo. I don't know, yeah. man. So uh, Honestly, it makes me think of Secondhand Lions. Yeah. Like Secondhand Lions, you know, they're in fields, there's crops, the, there should be a lot of brightness going on, but it still just kind of had a dull sheen across mm-hmm. the entire thing that uh, it just takes away from a little bit of the pop that you normally feel at a movie theater. But at the same time, I feel like those things that it does really well in the like the modern action movie sense, it really did in, like introduce slash reintroduce this idea of like the hand to hand combat, the the close fighting quarters. You know, when when Bourne first gets into that fight with the guy in his apartment and there's just, you know, they're breaking coffee tables and I feel like everyone's covered in dust by the end of it. It's like it's so visceral. And I feel like those punches land so much harder because it does look like an early 90s movie, but it's punctuated with this like really brutal violence. Like there were parts of this movie that I could not believe it got away with being a PG-13 movie in 2002. Like when when he uh, when he is like ramming that guy's face through the slats of the staircase and, and like, like rides him down all like, you know, uh, a free fall onto the ground and they show all of it. And I'm like, what the hell? How did they get away with this? <laughs> but it definitely makes the movie. I feel like it almost works in its favor that it feels like such a throwback until the modern fight choreography kicks in. And it's almost so jarring that it's even more effective. 
Dude, to this day, I, I am a 31-year-old man. I have seen my share of violent movies. I still almost vomit every single time he shoves that pen through the guy's hand. <laughs> and he, like, slowly pulls it out. Yeah. I still, to this day, think that is one of the most disgusting, like, physical bits of action. <laughs> Just, ugh. It's so gross, and it's so effective. <laughs> it's so well done. But hey, as we get into talking about this movie, let's give a quick plug. If you like our podcast, if you've been following us for a while, what really helps us is if you could like or subscribe on whatever streaming platform you're listening to. If you give us a five-star rating or write a review, that also helps bump us up these Apple Podcasts, Spotify charts. Uh, we're making really good headway, but we can always use more likes and subscribers also, if you like what we're doing, you want to help us out a little bit monetarily, you could go over to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash film whiskey. For as little as $3 a month, you get a ton of bonus content, including a special Discord server. You get NSFW episodes. You get special bonus episodes just for patrons. We love interacting with everybody on Patreon. So we'd love to see you there. All right, man, let's uh, let's stop talking about the gruesome violence for a minute so that we can explain the plot in general here. <laughs> let's let's move into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen often for the first time. Now, obviously, this is not Brad's first time seeing this movie or he wouldn't have picked it as one of his season five entries. But Brad, we have 60 seconds on the clock. Can you explain the plot of this movie? Dude doesn't know who he is, realizes he's a super spy and uses those skills to find out who he is. Boom. Boom. That's about it. <laughs> that is pretty much it. I mean, <laughs> one of the surprises for me revisiting this movie was, A, how long it takes to get the reveal of, like, who he is. And, and it's really a well-constructed script. I mean, like, really brilliant stuff here. But also, like, the things that I thought I remembered being, like, major parts of this movie were not major parts of the movie at all. I thought Julia Stiles was like the the co-star of this movie. And I think she has a bigger role in the second one, if I recall correctly. But yeah, she does. But like she is barely in this movie. And this was like prime Julia Stiles time, too. So I was really kind of surprised that she barely shows up for. I mean, she's probably on screen. What? Five total minutes of the movie. Yeah, maybe. And a lot of it is at the very end for like two and a half, three minutes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so where do you want to start today, Brad? Do you want to go into the performances? Do you want to talk more about like placing this in its historical context or maybe talk more about shoving pens through people's hands? Yeah, let's let's talk about the movie itself. Uh, I'm curious. The the movie has such a, a bare bones plot, right? It, it mm -hmm. literally is. He, he's rescued by some fishermen and they set him off on this journey to find himself because he has a. He has a thing sewn into his hip that has like a bank account number. And th that's about it, man. Mm -hmm. Like that's the plot. He meets this cute girl. She he pays her a ton of money to help him escape up to Paris and they go on adventures. It, it's really a classic uh, fantasy adventure story if you really think about it. Yeah. I mean, like it, it has those elements of like a, you know, a, to catch a thief almost like you're just going to kind of ride along with these two people and see what happens. And at the same time, it has this really kind of looming sense of like uneasiness and dread because, you know, this is going to lead to somewhere. You don't quite know exactly what, what the reveal is going to be. You have the idea that Matt Damon is a good guy, a good hearted guy, even if he has these hidden triggerable <laughs> reflexes that cause him to kill people. 
But even as an audience member, you're not entirely sure where this is headed. And I think that's kind of that tension, that rub is what makes this movie so effective for me. Yeah, and and it really becomes that effective, I think, because of the performances in the movie. I think that uh, Franca Patente, uh, I'm going to just say that that's how you pronounce her name, Franca Patente, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, the girl who plays Marie and Matt Damon, in my mind, they just have really good chemistry. Mm-hmm. And the the way that they are trying to dance around the fact that Matt Damon doesn't know who he is or what he's all about is really what gives this movie its its thrusting force, what keeps it propelling forward. And I think they do such a good job of like hanging on the razor's edge of we're sticking together to figure this out, but it's so close to, you know, Marie just abandoning him at the drop of a hat. And that's like the tension that really keeps it going. And I, I think that Damon... And uh, Patent just really do a phenomenal job with that. Yeah, I really was impressed with Damon in this movie because it's a, it's a kind of character that he couldn't get away with playing now. He's a 50-year-old man now. But like even here at, you know, 30, he is playing it with this boyishness because he is an amnesiac. Like he is so earnest and so sincere and so naive. And I think it really works. And he's playing into the fact that like he still has a baby face. And yet you see this like baby, you know, it's the, the, the idea of the baby faced assassin. Like it's exactly what he is. We've watched a few Damon movies for the podcast now. And one of them was Goodwill Hunting. Another one was Saving Private Ryan. His character in this is so much similar, so much more similar to Private Ryan than it is to Will Hunting. You know, in, in Goodwill Hunting, he had that. Uh, that edge to that him. edge to him that you know the dickishness if he needed to and he didn't have that in private ryan he was like a naive farm kid and he really kind of brings that same energy to this and i think it works really really well in terms of you as an audience member understanding that these things that he is finding himself doing like knowing to go to a bank knowing where the you know the 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 security what's it called the safety deposit box is located yeah. knowing how to do these hand to hand combat things. And it's just like muscle memory. It is kind of out of his control. And he goes back and forth between like, I am a helpless amnesiac. And then like, I know how to speak all these languages <laughs> and I don't know how to explain the disparity between those two things. And it's only because he does the sincere thing so well that you're willing to go along with him. Yeah. For me, it comes down to one specific scene when he has dropped off his bag in this train station, he just drops it in a locker, comes back out to the car, and he and Marie get into it. And it's in that moment where he offers her the chance to get out, and she's yelling at him, and he finally just cracks and goes, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know who I am or why I know the things I know. And like up until that point, you can tell that he's been holding it in. He's been holding it back. He's he's trying to present this this strong presence of I, I know what I'm doing, and that's the moment when he cracks and admits his weakness. That you're like, oh, I I'm with him. I like I believe in him as a character, and I, I think it's that moment that for me is the most sincere part of the movie, and really sold the entire film. It, for me, it really pivoted on that scene. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. 
I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? We've talked a lot about Damon on this podcast before, and I feel like every time he comes up here, I kind of try to champion him as... He's in this interesting area where he is absolutely an A-list star. And, you know, in terms of the money he commands for every movie he stars in, he makes A-list money. He makes huge budget movies that sell a lot of tickets. Like, you know, on paper, I didn't think The Martian was going to end up being one of the four or five biggest grossing movies of its year. And it just was because it was a good movie. And people like Matt Damon. But I feel like whenever we think of super mega stars, he never really comes to mind. And I think he he kind of has the heart of a character actor. He's always willing to be the guy that doesn't look as flattering in a movie. Like I just watched his movie, The Last Duel, which was really good, by the way. And, you know, his character has shades of gray. When you watch The Departed, like his character is like a sniveling how, how weasel. Many, and, and how many shades of gray, Bob? <laughs> 50. I'd say 50 or so. <laughs> Roundabouts. Yeah. When you watch The Departed, he's like this sniveling weasel of a character and you hate him, but he plays it so, so well. And I think when you kind of sit down and and think through the major characters he's had through his career, from a Will Hunting to a Private Ryan to a Jason Bourne to, you know, The Departed, he's really good at those sort of minor variations in like the Matt, the Matt Damon persona. And I think like he definitely has a wider range than someone like a Leo. Like, at the end of the day, Leo plays Leo in every movie. Every single movie. You know, and I love him, and he's great in everything. But I think Damon might be the more versatile actor. Yeah, honestly, dude, the the more Leo I watch, the more... I mean, I, I said it the other week in our Aviator bonus episode. I think he's at his best in that movie. And every other movie since then, he's trying to do the same thing, but just slightly differently enough to get an Oscar. Hmm. And it, it's it's just unfortunate because I, I, I'm with you, dude. I think Leo does the same thing over and over, and he's so good at it that I don't mind it. But I, I kind of agree with you, dude. I think Damon has a lot of range and versatility that is is underappreciated Absolutely. at the very least. I mean, think think of the Oceans movies. Like, his comic timing is great. I know in, in a re- really recent top five episodes we did, I talked about a movie uh, from like the mid 2000s he did called The Informant. Really good stuff. I just, I love Matt Damon. I'm glad we get to talk about him some more. I know we should probably move on to somebody else, but this movie does not work. I don't even think this movie works if you have like a Brad Pitt in the title role. He's too, like, he is too much a grown man at this point. And I think an Edward Norton has this edge to him that like, you might not trust him, even as an audience member. I think Leo might kind of have that that edge to him a little bit, too. And so with Damon, he leans into and he leverages the sincerity and the baby face, you know, the baby facedness of his uh, like his physique and his character in a way that I can't really see anybody else pulling off this role. Well, let's let's jump into some of the other roles, because I, I think that there's a few other really good performances here. Uh, and mostly for me, it's Brian Cox and Chris Cooper. Oh, yeah. I was just stunned coming back to this movie how much I loved the two of them in their roles in this. Brian Cox is good in everything. 
He's like, he had some pretty, uh, some pretty spicy quotes on the Twitter this week. Uh, you know, right now he's on this show called Succession, which is like one of the biggest shows on TV. Uh, I, I've never watched Succession. And for anyone out there listening, I know, I know I need to, but like, I, I haven't. But Brian Cox is the man. And Chris Cooper is the man. And I wish we saw Chris Cooper in more things because he is just, he's like a slightly softer Tommy Lee Jones. And I think that's what makes him work. He doesn't have the kind of like sarcastic, sardonic thing that Tommy Lee Jones is doing in The Fugitive. But in this movie, even though he's chasing Bourne and even though he is the bad guy, I never felt a level of like, oh, that, you know, that son of a bitch. He just seems like a guy who's doing his job. His job is just to do really shady CIA things. Yeah, I I think the last time we saw him was in American Beauty, maybe? I think so. I don't think he's come up on this show since then. Yeah, and I, we really need to get more of him on the podcast because he does such a phenomenal job of playing a CIA handler in this and having that dark undercurrent of, I'm going to do whatever it takes. But there is a genuine sense of, like, he has that curiosity of, like, what the heck is going on here? Like, what is Jason Bourne doing? Why isn't he reporting back? Y- you can tell that he is so just like flummoxed by what's happening that you just believe in him as a character. And I, I think Cooper just does such a phenomenal job of it up until the the final you know point in his arc. He genuinely believes that he is going to come out on top mm-hmm. at the at the end of it all. And I, I think that's what I just really love about him so much in this. Brad, before we go to break here, I do want to mention that, like, I really loved seeing some kind of up and coming actors at the time in smaller roles here. Like, I I totally forgot Clive Owen was in this movie. And I don't think I mean, like, he hadn't blown up. He wasn't in A-list movies yet. But there's something about that character that it's almost like Doug Lyman knew this guy's going to be big and they film him differently and his scenes are filmed with a different rhythm and pace than the other assassins that come after Bourne. And it's really interesting. It's almost like they they could they could have predicted that Clive Owen was going to be a big thing. And I really liked that they did that because he was really, really good in this movie. I walk alone like you. We always walk alone. Who me? Who are you, Bob? Paris? Treadstone. Both of us. Treadstone? Which one? Paris. I live in Paris. Did you get the headaches? Yeah. <sighs> I get such bad headaches. You know, at night when you're driving a car. I don't know, maybe it's something to do with the headlights. What is Treadstone? Treadstone said pills. They said, go to Paris. Is Treadstone <laughs> in Paris? Look at this. Look at what they make you give. Yeah, I mean, he's supposed to just play, like, mysterious assassin number 17, right. basically. And yet, the the scene of Bourne and him, like, facing off in, the, in this, you know, south of Paris, uh, rural homestead, was just probably the most tense part of the entire movie. And, like, the, the only way I can capture how I felt during that scene was to say that, like, 
if any of the listeners of this podcast have played, were a part of the PUBG craze and played PUBG for the two to three years that it was just the number one game in the world, that scene captured every bit of of nervousness and and tension and energy that you had playing PUBG all in a movie scene. And I've never seen a movie capture it so perfectly where you're just wandering through a field, looking for your enemies, trying to engage in little tricks to suss out where they are. And in the end, Bourne just got lucky, got the jump on him, and was able to get the kill. And it, it just... Dude, I was just at the edge of my seat the entire time. Yeah, and, and again, that's one of those scenes where I think that we were just cooler with bloody violence in the early 2000s <laughs> than we are in movies today. And yet, like, man, I really respected the violence in this movie. He, you know, just kind of willy-nilly shoots his shotgun and happens to catch Clive Owen, like, in the arm and chest. And, you, I mean, you see him get shot. Clive Owen does a really good job of, like, you know, selling the impact of it. You see it like a little squib go off. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, I, f- I I just feel like the violence in this movie has so much more real world uh, effect in it and, like, so much more finality to it that, like, when somebody gets fatally shot, oh, this the stakes are raised here. And it's just so much more effective than anything I've seen in like an MCU movie. And I, God, I've already mentioned the MCU twice on this podcast episode. No, just but like, crap on it, man. Go for it. I mean, like when you watch Endgame, it's like hordes and hordes of nameless, faceless villains attacking hordes and hordes of nameless, faceless heroes. And like many of them are dying, but it's all bloodless. And like you see, you know, even like in Lord of the Rings, there are moments where you see heads get chopped off, but because there's no blood that goes with the head getting chopped off it's like all right that's cool for pg-13 and this is so towing the line of pg-13 and r that i almost i just respect it more it does remind me of the dark knight in that way where like every punch every hit every bullet feels so much more impactful than anything i see in like these really sanitized pg-13 movies yeah i'm i'm so glad we're getting into like the action of this movie because I, I feel like on this podcast, we haven't hit, I don't know, a ton of action films that are genuinely purely an action movie. And I really think that The Bourne Identity is the is really one of the pinnacles of the action genre. And it's because the action in the movie feels so realistic. It, you feel every impact. You feel every bullet hit in such a way that you're right, Bob, you don't see that very often in many movies all right brad i think we're in a really good spot with this movie but i liked this movie a lot and i'm excited to keep talking about it uh, but before we get there let's hit sample number two in our glenn Livett sampler and try this founder's reserve what do you say let's get to it all right so today we are checking out the glenn Livett founder's reserve now brad it's it me- is it a british Yes. Mm, yes, Glenn Levitt yes. Founders Reserve. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know how like uh, on your smartphone that they always put the keys so close together that when you're typing really fast, you just kind of like hope autocorrect catches whatever you're doing. I definitely. Oh, no, I just I don't have fat fingers like. You. Oh, that's true. My big old sausage fingers. Uh, <laughs> I, I was typing really fast trying to look up stats for this segment, and I just typed in Glenn Levitt Flubder Reserve and. <laughs> So I can't, I can't necessarily vouch that whatever information I share is accurate because 
looks like I'm actually looking up the Flubder Reserve here. You're you're actually looking up Robin Williams <laughs> in Flubber, Flubber Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this whiskey is relatively new to the Glenlivet lineup. It was introduced in 2014. It is a single malt whiskey, and remember, single malt means that it is from one single distillery, and it is 100% malted barley in the mash bill. However, it's I a thought it, I thought it meant that they literally just took one single head of malt. <laughs> And used that for the <laughs> entire process. They just extracted as much as they could from that bad boy. <laughs> so this is a no-age stated scotch whiskey. So it's not like two of the others will be drinking, the 12-year and the 14-year. It comes in at exactly 80 proof, 40% ABV. Brad, this, uh, you know, it's poured out in front of me here. Even on the nose, this is a very mild whiskey. And that there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, honestly, we got some of that from the 12-year as well. I'm a little bit iffier on this one going in, if I'm being honest. Dude, I the nose on this one for me, it, it's definitely soft, mm-hmm. but I got little bits of vanilla, oak, uh, a hint of orange zest, and like a little bit of leather. Mm. I, I actually really liked this nose a lot. Uh, I gave it an 8 out of 10 on on my score. When I poured it out, I like immediately took a nosing of it. And I I shouldn't do that. I know I should let it like calm down in the glass a little bit. But for the first, I'd say 90 seconds, this was in my glass. It smells exactly like a hard cider. Like it's, (laughs) it really does smell like an angry orchard. To the extent that I was like taking it away from my nose and looking like quizzically at the glass. I really like it. It was just really interesting how much this smelled like a hard cider. It did finally calm down a little bit, and like the predominant note I got was unbaked bread dough, real yeasty, like some really raw grains. It's nice, um, but that combination of like the sour tart apple and the the yeasty bread dough was something I wasn't quite expecting. I'm gonna give it a seven and a half on the nose. Again, like a little bit timid about like what's gonna happen next. I really enjoyed this nose, Bob. I'm just gonna stick there. Uh, because when I actually drank this whiskey, uh, my tasting notes were water and sour orange. It didn't taste like anything on my palate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I say that genuinely like saddened because I, I really liked the nose. I, I was super impressed, especially at the price. You, you kind of saw the price come out on the palate here. It's not a great taste. I'm going to give it a three out of 10. Oh, wow. See, I. I thought this was a very pleasant whiskey. I don't think it was a bad whiskey. It's just kind of nondescript. Like the notes that I took were fruity and sweet. And I looked at that for a while and I was like, all right, I got to do better than that. So I really was racking my brain for <laughs> like, how, how do I? And it really is. It's kind of like a very bright, like uh, peachy or like some sort of stone fruit. But the fact that I couldn't even differentiate, like, is it a peach or is it a plum? No idea. And then it was like citrus peel. And I'm with you. You you said it was sour. I would call it a little more bitter, actually. Like it, it became really like grapefruit heavy for me to the extent that it was like, oh, this is like a grapefruit peel. And uh, I didn't really like that. It's not super malty. I didn't get a lot of like dark coffee notes or anything really earthy on it. So it was just kind of blandly sweet. And then it tipped into like an orange bitters kind of thing for me on the back end. Uh, I'll give it a seven and a half again. I liked it, but it just, you know, it was it was above average at best for me. Yeah. Well, for me, it really has just been a roller coaster. Started off great with the nose, was really rough on the palate. 
And then once it like sat on my on on my throat for a little bit, I had finished drinking it. After a little bit, it kind of got a little bit of oak and orange that sat around for a while. And I, I finally finished. It almost had a little bit of a dark chocolate, almost a coffee flavor to it. So I I was actually okay with the finish. It, it was pretty good. I'll give it a 7 out of 10 on the finish. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 7 as well. It was a little bit spicier than I thought that it would be. And that was kind of nice because, like I said, the the tasting was so flat that to have a little bit of like that prickliness come out on the finish was really nice. It did turn just a little bit bitter again. It had that grapefruity thing going on. I'll give it a 7 out of 10. And then when it comes to the balance, Brad, I think I'm probably going to be higher here than you are because the taste was such a big dip for you. I'm going to give it an 8 on balance. This was a really nice whiskey and inoffensive and pleasant. And when we get to the price, I think you know that might redeem your score a little bit too. But even as I drank this, I was kind of like, this has to cost less than the 12 year does. Like it's just not as complex. It's not as big and bold, but it was still nice. <laughs> and that's about the best I can say for it. So I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the balance. What what a nice little whiskey you it's are. Just, it's just nice. <laughs> little Glenlivet Flubders Reserve. Uh, for me, the balance is a four. Yikes. Uh it, it just was all over the place for me from the nose and finish being like decent, solid, above average to the actual palate being tasteless. Uh, it's not a great balance. When you get into the value, this is like really hard for me because it's a $36 single malt. And, and, you know, you don't need to look into the world of scotch for very long to know that that is like rock bottom. I mean, in a certain sense, Bob, this belongs in the springtime of swill. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so while that is very cheap, I'm still not going to give it a very high score. And it's primarily because I I think that there's potential here that the palate just did not deliver on. Yeah. Um, I'm still only going to give it a four out of 10 on value. There's just not enough on the palate to really consider this for me. It's definitely a cheap single malt, but not one that I'm willing to spend money on, and I'd probably give it a pass. I think I'm going to give this a six and a half on value because it is a good value. Like it's it's really cheap, but I think it drinks like a thirty five dollar, thirty six dollar single malt would drink. And this is about the same price as a bottle of Monkey Shoulder, which is a blended with, uh, you know, blended scotch. And I think Monkey Shoulder has significantly better flavor than this. So, like, the only reason I would recommend this over a Monkey Shoulder is if somebody specifically said, like, I want to try single malt scotch at a reasonable price point. But, Brad, would you pour this out as the example of, like, a gateway into single malt? Because I know I wouldn't. So, like, no. No, honestly, dude, I would go $10 more expensive and get the Glenlivet 12-year. Yeah, that Glenlivet like 12 is really nice. Yeah, and that's, that's still not like you're plunking down a ton of money for, for something. So, right. yeah, I'm going to give it a six and a half, and that actually puts me out way higher than I anticipated coming out, and I'm at a 36 and a half out of 50. I was going to say, dude, you're you're coming out pretty high. I'm at a 26 out of 50. Wow, we are over 10 points apart from each other here. Yeah, this is one of the biggest variations in score we've had on a whiskey in a really long time. So we're at a 62 and a half out of 100 or a 31.25 out of 50. So it's definitely not hitting that 35 mark where we usually start recommending. I would recommend trying this. 
I again, if you can get this little Glenlivet sampler for ten bucks, this sample was two dollars and fifty cents. And yeah. Brad and I split it, so we each drank a dollar twenty-five's worth of whiskey, and that was still a really good dollar twenty-five, Brad. But you know, I don't think you need to be paying like eight to ten dollars for this for a pour at a bar. So, end of the day, I'm not going to recommend. Yeah, I'm not going to recommend either. Uh, unless you're getting it in this sample pack, I would not say it's worth buying. Unfortunately, Bob, I'm so glad you brought up Monkey Shoulder. I'm not going to say anything else about it. Go buy some stinking monkey shoulder. Oh, it's so good. It's delicious. It's so good. It's so, so good. And it's 30 bucks. So yeah, monkey shoulder, go buy it. Glenlivet 12 year, go buy it. Glenlivet Flubders Reserve, uh, not quite. <laughs> Something tells me we're going to remember this for a while too. We drink a lot of whiskey <laughs> yes. that like, you know, three or four weeks later, I'm like, what was that one we just had? And we can't remember the mm-hmm. name. There's something about Flubder Reserve that is going to stick with me. <laughs> just like Flubber. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. You All know right, what will stick with us though, Bob? What's that, Brad? The Born Identity. Yeah, hopefully Born's identity sticks with us longer than it stuck with him. Let's get back <laughs> to, to talking about that movie. What do you say? <laughs> that was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to it, man. All right. That was Glenn Livett Flubder Reserve, a whiskey that we are both not recommending with the caveat that it is still a pleasant whiskey and palatable. Like it wasn't a, I, I don't know that I would call it bad. Would you call it bad? Yeah. Oh, I think I would. No. Clearly we have yeah, another I mean, Canadian mist on our hands here. If, uh, if 35 out of 50 is recommend, I would say that like 25 out of 50 is, is the bad area. And I, I came out to a 26. So maybe not bad, bad but plus not one. good. <laughs> bad plus one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have a feeling we're going to score this movie a lot higher than we scored the whiskey. But with all that said, I still do have a couple like little things that stood out to me this time around, Brad. And again, it's probably been a decade since I've watched this movie. I forgot a lot of it. But I do think that even though this kind of set the tone for what was to come in terms of action filmmaking, this was very obviously like the first attempt at a lot of this. And I think no more apparently than when they were in when they were in Jason Bourne's apartment and that the assassin came in to kill them and, you know, the hand to hand combat. And he thinks he's finally killed the guy and he's, you know, he's asking him, like, who are you? Who sent you? The guy fakes dead. And he goes and starts talking to, you know, his girlfriend and the guy pops up and just kind of stands there awkwardly for a second. And everyone just kind of looks over like, (laughs) what the hell? And then he like awkwardly shuffles <laughs> through a glass door and just flops over a balcony to kill himself so he doesn't have to give up his secrets. But it was filmed in such a way that there is just like probably two full seconds of awkward staring. And then they cut back to Bourne and he's still just kind of looking and they're just confused. And it was the most unintentionally funny thing I've seen in so long. Like I rewound it and watched it again because I was laughing so hard at that moment. It's kind of like in the podcast when you like accidentally forget to edit out a little chunk of silence. Yeah. There's just an awkward amount of silence between things that we say every single week. And you're I, like, no, those aren't accidental. That's just like when you say something that I want the audience to have a moment where they can all go. Mm. Oh, gotcha, and then gotcha, we just gotcha. enter right back in, you know? Oh, okay. I get that. 
<laughs> well, at the very least, I'm with you. He, he just awkwardly stares at them and then, like, just, like, boogies his way on out. Yeah, yeah he, he, he runs <laughs> like he really has to poop. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, he does, like, the, the I am a toddler with a full diaper, like, shuffle over <laughs> to the door and then just plummets to his death. It, it was just so funny, man. Dude, you don't want to know one of my favorite part of like being a parent is watching your kid like learn new things. And the new thing that my daughter learned is that when you squat, it's easier to poop. <laughs> and so now we know when she's pooping because she'll walk over to the corner. She'll just and assume squat. the position. <laughs> yeah. It's the funniest thing in the world, oh man. Oh my gosh. Speaking of things that are just poopy. Uh, the score to this movie, not great. Not great, man. Not ben. the best. It feels, it is the most dated part of this movie. It is the most, yeah, it's very 2002. And yes. at first I didn't realize how much of it was, it's a soundtrack more than it is a score. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that they had like, you know, subcontracted the work to, to techno artists of the time. But it had From this, Romania. this horrible techno beat in the background during one of the chases. And I was like, oh, this sucks. And I took the note down like, this is terrible. And then I put like a qualifier in my notes and I said, you know, make sure to mention that this was also the era where like Moby was popular. Mm-hmm. Not knowing at the time, Moby has at least one track on the soundtrack to The Born Identity. So no. like, it literally is Moby music. And oh, that's like, funny. Talk dude. about a name that no one under 25 listening to this podcast will have <laughs> any idea about. But yep. like Moby was a thing and it was, you know, in the era of weird techno and house music. And we've just decided to move on from it as a nation, you know? And I am A-OK with that. Yeah. That like here here's the question. Like, would you would you have it more like classically scored as like w- like with a Howard Shore, mm. or, you know, Hans Zimmer type of score, or would you do like like more modern music to it? I'm almost thinking like putting like some sort of classical Bach in for like one of the fight scenes. I don't know, man. But it what has to thinking? be it has to be like a piece that doesn't fit at all. Oh like, it, no, it's like Claire de Lune. <laughs> Oh, to our holy father sticking sticking a pen through someone's hand oh man you know i don't mind the like the percussiveness of it like i actually thought that especially in the car chase which we haven't talked about at all fantastic car chase sequence oh just an all-timer it's one of the best oh my gosh so good so like it, it doesn't not work i think it's just the way like the instrumentation and the way that the synths sound it's like you know when you listen to an 80s song with synthesizer it's very obviously like 80s synth and 2002 techno just sounds like 2002 i don't know how else to explain it besides that i think we could have incorporated some of that percussion into a little bit more of a traditional soundtrack and it would have worked probably better than what we have here yeah, man, I, I think honestly, there's not really much else for me to say here. There's a few scenes that I really love in this movie, but honestly, there's none more so than when Brian Cox gets the call right after, you know, Chris Cooper has been shot. Mm-hmm. And just the look on Brian Cox's face as he says, shut it all down. And then you just see this this war room that, you know, you've returned to time and time again throughout the movie. 
like all the monitors slowly start blinking off the light the fluorescent lights overhead slowly go off for some reason the reason i love this movie so much and and i didn't remember it because i haven't seen it in such a long time is that this movie stands on its own Mm -hmm. like at the end of this film he and marie have have safely escaped Brian Cox has shut down the program. Chris Cooper, you know, the one chasing born is dead. Like this movie stands perfectly alone, in my opinion, as one of the best spy movies ever made. And, you know, the the other two movies in, in the Matt Damon portion of the trilogy are really great. But I just love that this movie is just a standalone genius of an action movie. Yeah. And that's the that's something I miss about the early 2000s, too, was like. Did they expect that if this was big enough, they would make a sequel? Absolutely. But you don't make the movie with the sequels in mind. And I think that's something that's every time we get a new IP, it's like, oh, and they're planning six of these. And and it's just like, oh, my gosh. And you can tell the way they make the movie that it's like they might give you a little bit of payoff at the end of number one. And then they're like, yeah, but we have to save all the rest of this story to be paid off in two, three and four. And this one's just like, no, we are going to completely close this arc. And if audiences like this enough, absolutely, there's there's always going to be chances to make more of these. It's just like James Bond. You can tell self-contained stories or even going back to a few weeks ago. It's like Sherlock Holmes. You can tell self-contained stories with Sherlock Holmes solving mysteries. And that that is a premise that will never get old. And I think that's just something I kind of miss about the movies because it doesn't seem like we do that anymore Unless they're like interconnected to eight other movies. Well, I mean, we've talked about it, right? That anymore, movies are either billion dollar blockbusters or teeny tiny indie films. <laughs> it seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, in order to get just really well made one off movies, you have to watch low budget indie films, which, mm. if we're being honest, uh, can be kind of hit or miss sometimes. You know <laughs> and what? So. It's not a low budget indie movie, but uh, it, I mean, it feels that way compared to No Way Home. But like, we're getting Knives Out 2 this year, and I'm very excited for Knives Out 2 because that's another one of those movies that's like the first chapter, complete story arc, book is closed, and now they're going to make a sequel. And I don't know where they're going to go. And I'm excited about that. I mean, I hope that it doesn't come across as a cash grab. If, if they retain the, the energy and wit of the first one, then I'm a hundred percent on board. I didn't mean to just like interject in the middle of your final score, but <laughs> so no, you're good. So dude. let's just jump back in midstream into that thought. Yeah, uh, I think it's a nine out of ten. I think that there is so much going for this movie. I, I think if there's anything missing, there's just a little bit lacking in the overall storyline. Mm-hmm. Like there's not enough punch. There's not yeah. enough like true change in the world for it to matter. Like it's a simple story about this spy who's trying to regain control of his life. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't need to be any more than that. So I I love The Born Identity. I really hope people will go back and watch it. For me, it's a nine out of 10. Yeah, I'm going to give it an eight and a half. And I'm like, I was really close to giving it a nine because there's just not much wrong with this movie. And I think I'm kind of coming out in the exact same place you are, which is it just feels a little bit like a small movie. And that's not really yeah. the fault of the movie, like because the story is very satisfying. But there's just also nothing about it that even though I'm satisfied at the end of the movie, that causes me to go back and think like this is this is an all timer example of this genre. 
so like it's it's hard because you want to reward the craftsmanship and and how brilliant the script is structured and the fight choreography, all of that. But I, I guess at the end of the day, there is just something about it that's like, yeah, really good movie that I would see on a Saturday afternoon in 2002, you know, with my dad. And that back in the day when you had a lot of really solid B plus movies yeah. coming out. And this is this isn't even like a B plus movie in my mind. This is like an A minus movie. And it's kind of like an A plus example of craftsmanship. It's just not a it's just not a perfect, like transcendent movie. And there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. It's it's still yep. really good. And I'm really glad you brought it up for this podcast, man. Well, I am glad that you are glad, Bob. But I don't give a rip about what you think. I want to know what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks. So hit us up. Find us on the gram. We are at Film Whiskey. And if you want to join the conversation, jump in more directly on our Discord. You can find a link to it at the end of every show notes. If you've never used Discord before, it is a self-contained social media experience where you only interact with the people who are on your server. It's a super awesome way to for us to just connect to people on a really chill level. So if you want to talk about movies and whiskey and everything in between those two subjects, come join us on our Discord. All right, Brad, I've got my movies here in the wheel randomizer. I'm going to click spin. I'm going to make some spinny sounds here. Spin away, my friend. We're watching Cameron Crowe's 2005 film Elizabethtown. It's a movie that I've mentioned a couple times this season already. I'm interested to watch that one, Brad, because it's like a mess, and I also love it. So <laughs> join us next <laughs> week as I parse really out those, selling it, man. As I parse out those really conflicting feelings. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.